Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways big and small to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Scott Riley, too. Let's move the needle. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Moving the Needle. As educators, when we think about creating content for our students, we have a lot to consider. We want to ensure we communicate our learning objectives, utilizing different strategies to connect ideas and engage the students. To do this, we often employ different pedagogical approaches to convey the content we created. Each strategy we use acts like a unique tool that can come with several pros and cons. This can lead us down a rabbit hole, trying to find the perfect pedagogical strategy to use and even inspire us to create new ones. I'm excited to discuss a hybrid approach using experiential learning and social innovation with our guest, Jim Kucher. Jim Kucher serves as the program director of the MS in Health and Social Innovation at UMB. He's an award-winning teacher and internationally recognized as a leader in social entrepreneurship. He cultivates strong entrepreneurial skill development for his students, researchers, and professionals through experiential learning courses and workshops. He's the lead author of Social Entrepreneurship, a practice-based approach to social innovation, and he's also the host of Profiles in Social Innovation, the podcast. It's my great pleasure to welcome Jim to the show. Jim, welcome. Uh, Scott, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Um, I like to start the interview uh, with kind of a setting the groundwork, setting the baseline for everyone listening. Um, I want to talk about what experiential learning is and what social innovation are. Because that's the those are the topics of the show. Can you tell me what you what your definition of those two things are? Absolutely. The first one's real easy. Experiential learning is just a fancy academic term for learning by doing, right? I mean, you know, we all took um, experiential classes in high school, right? We took shop or we took home ec or we took something like that, and and you you built something, you made something in the class. And by doing that, you learned how to do it. So, you know, the high school shop class is notorious for being littered with boards that weren't quite the right length. So you learn how to measure, you learn how to cut exactly. And eventually you produce something. I actually still have it. It's called a pilgrim footstool. And it still sits in my living room to this day. I made it in shop class. I think I was, I don't know, sophomore in high school. So that's the easy one. Social innovation is both very simple and quite frankly maddeningly complex. And I think the difference is between sort of the theory and the execution. So the theory is simply that you're trying to take an entrepreneur's mentality and apply it to a deeply entrenched social problem. So fundamentally, an entrepreneur looks at a problem and says, what's wrong with this? What could I do better? What isn't working? How is the problem not being solved? And we're all familiar with that from the commercial world, you know, famous examples like the iPhone and those kinds of things. You know, the technology we're using today was invented by somebody who said, hey, you know, we can do this thing and podcasts have taken off. So that's sort of the entrepreneur perspective. But then you apply it to deeply entrenched social problems like diabetes and hunger, poverty, homelessness, those kinds of things. So it gets very, very complicated very quickly in practice. But what we do at University of Maryland Baltimore Graduate School in the program that I run in social innovation is we help folks figure out step by step and move by move how to try to identify those problems 
and come up with solutions for them. So uh, it's a long journey. It's an arduous journey, but uh, we happily have a few, a few folks that have come out the other side and are, are doing some really interesting work. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, it, it really sounds like this is kind of a, a double-edged sword in the fact that social innovation is a great space for using experiential learning. There's a lot of hands-on stuff you can do, but like you mentioned, it, it can cut you just as quick because it's really complicated to get into these ideas and do something practical like in person, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not quite like, you know, woodshop. We don't need to keep a lot of Band-Aids around in the physical sense. Um, but but I do spend a lot of time with my students talking them through things where there's frustration and there's ambiguity and and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting journey. But, you know, the experiential learning piece, the way I sort of help people get their heads around that is to think of art class, right? So most of us have taken a class somewhere along the line in painting or pottery or even a writing class, you know, poetry or whatever. And in all of those experiences, what happens at some point in time is you get to what they call studio, which is where, let's take painting, for example. You bring in a painting and it's half finished and you put it up on an easel and all of your classmates look at it and they say, Scott, you know, I really love what you did with the way that you pictured that flower. I can really see the flower. I can almost smell it. But the dog sitting next to the flower looks kind of funny. You know, dogs don't usually have three ears and what happened to the tail and gosh, the fur looks like it's kind of matted or something. Did you really mean that? So you have that sort of feedback as you're creating the work, right? So that hap that's very, very common in art. And it's also very, very common in entrepreneurship education, which is essentially what we do. We're training social entrepreneurs to try to attack deeply entrenched social problems. And they're building what we hope will be sustainable business models that can generate revenue while creating this social change. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of what we call iteration, which is trial and error. So you present the business model in a class one day and the instructor and the students all sort of look at it together and say, Scott, you know, I really like how you're addressing the problem of chronic homelessness in terms of how you're going to help people recover from that. But gosh, you know, the way you're paying for it doesn't quite make sense to me. So then you go, ah, okay, thank you. And we even work on it together to say, how can we do that better? And then you go back and do another week's homework and come back and it's sort of lather, rinse, repeat at that point. So then when you're in the classroom, is your role more of like a facilitator? Absolutely. Do you kind of just... Absolutely. Okay, that's my curiosity because it sounds like you can just let your students go and if they have a, a little bit of drive in them, they'll just take the class and run with it. Absolutely. Right? And actually, it's funny, the hardest part, I think, for folks who teach in this kind of environment is learning that many times the best thing that the faculty member can do is be quiet. And because we've got a lot of folks uh, that teach in this program who've got a lot of great expertise and, and want to impart that expertise, it's very hard. And, I, and I'm basically talking to myself when I say this. I don't even, you know, the other folks that teach in our program are much better at it than I am, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, it, it's very hard to say, okay, they're going to figure this out in another 10, 15 seconds. And you just kind of got to give them that space 
to get there as opposed to the sort of faculty slash parental reflex that wants to jump in. You know, if, if you've raised kids, you know, you want to jump in and give them the answer. And that's not always what's best. It's often better to let them figure out the answer. So yes, absolutely. The faculty member is very much a facilitator and, and often the quieter, the better, which is totally opposite from what most people who have been teaching for a living are used to doing. I can 100% commiserate with you there. I have to, that reflex is strong in me. And when my <laughs> students are close, I just want to help them get there. But you're right. It's so much more enriching for them if they come to it by themselves and they can turn around and look at you and be like, hey, we did it. You know, that, I guess that sense of accomplishment is almost as important as the content that they learn too, because it encourages them to keep doing the process. Absolutely. And, and the other really tricky point is when they get to an answer and the reality is that their answer is accurate but not complete. So there's that kind of yes and moment. And it's very challenging there because you have to be careful to deliver that yes and so it doesn't come across as a yes but, right? Because a yes but will will um, discourage further participation, yes, and will encourage them to continue to move forward. And it's, it's language gets very challenging. And then we teach in what we call a high flex mode. So we've got classes that are held live on a video conferencing platform. We have classes that are held asynchronously on Blackboard. We've got classes that are recorded. So you're communicating across multiple modes. So you also have to be, you know, really conscious of how is this coming across when I'm typing it into Blackboard as feedback versus how this is coming across when I'm speaking to a student live on a video conference? It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it sounds like communication is one of the, the challenges or being intentional with your communication, knowing what you're trying to say and the tone and everything. Are there other challenges that you, you have found that make this particular approach difficult to implement? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, one that comes to mind which is more relative to the sort of entrepreneurial aspect of it than it is necessarily directly to the experiential learning, although I do think that you kind of can't have one without the other, um, is, is what we call a pivot. So a student is working on a particular concept, a particular idea for a way to solve a problem, and they realize that for various reasons, usually environmental there's some sort of circumstance in the community, for example, that uh, prevents them from executing on the idea that they had. And they have to go back and rethink it and sometimes even come up with a totally different idea or even a totally different community to help. Right. And that can be very frustrating because they've spent weeks, months, in some cases, years working on this. It's, it's very analogous to, you know, our colleagues in the medical school where they're doing uh, substantial scientific experiments, right? Where you could try five, eight, six, 20, 100 ways to try and solve a scientific problem. And in that world, that experimental mindset is a little more established, a little more accepted. It's, it's sometimes a little more challenging when you're in the, in the social sciences world that I sit to sort of get your head around that. But it's, it's, it's a very present reality. And for the student... 
it can be very frustrating because they're like, darn it, I was working on this thing. The other thing is they get very passionate about their solution, right? Because this is my idea. And to have to set that passion down or set it aside when they realize that this isn't going to work the way I thought it was going to work is um, it's an interesting moment. So you're, you're, uh, you're part facilitator, you're part mentor, you're part psychotherapist, you know, you're, you're a lot of different things, but uh, again, it makes it a lot of fun. And they never said it would be easy being a teacher, right? <laughs> <laughs> On this topic of challenges, and I love that you made the analogy between this iterative you know, experimentation in your projects versus science. Um, as a scientist, I am sadly like anchored to the idea of quantitative metrics. And I'm so curious for this experiential learning and social innovation. You know, You talk about these setbacks that the students have in their projects. How do you how do you measure success in the class? How do you say this student's on track? Do you have tests, uh, projects? Well, well, they have projects that they have to do all the time, but it's very interesting because at the end of the day, what you're talking about is strategic decisions, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about a, a strategy for developing an organization that's going to try to tackle a problem, right? So in the science world, you know, uh, and, and I'm speaking way out of my element here, so you have to forgive me. But basically, you know, the science world, the question is, did we kill the virus or didn't we? You know, um, in, in, in my world, the, the solutions are much more nuanced. And quite frankly, you can't really tell if it was the right strategy until you implement it. Because quite frankly, if it worked, it was the right strategy. If it didn't work, it was the wrong strategy. So the only thing we can do as educators is evaluate the thought process. So we look at it and we say, okay, does this make sense? Does it seem like they've addressed it from all the appropriate perspectives? Um, when it gets to the sort of financial modeling and building the quote unquote business side, you know, do the numbers add up? Do, do the financial projections make sense, right? So it's, it's really evaluating the, the logic patterns and the thought process that went into the work more than it is is this going to work or not? There is some, is this going to work or not in there? Because, you know, um, I just graded some work for a student who defined their market as the United States of America. And I said, well, you know, that's a little broad, <laughs> especially for a startup, right? I mean, you're not going to start countrywide. Maybe you get to countrywide in 20 years, but, you know, as a startup, you're not going to get there. So, you know, there, there are some things where you go, eh, not exactly. But most of the time, it's the thought pattern. So talking about your approach to to assessing these students, it sounds like there's a, it sounds to me a little bit holistic, like you approach it and you have your method of doing it. But I'm curious, when it comes to consistency between multiple faculty assessing these the students' work, what's what's the plan? Are there rubrics? Is there a set of rigid guidelines or is it individual faculty based, like how they approach assessment? That's a great question. There's, there's a couple of factors there. Uh, one is that those assessments are made within a context of a particular subject matter. Okay, so one of the classes that I teach is the finance class, which is the penultimate class. It comes in right before they hit their capstone experience. And in that class, it's all about how you're going to pay for this, right? So those strategies are around funding strategies for social purpose organizations. 
we have a colleague that teaches uh, the marketing class, so his perspective is around marketing. Another colleague of mine teaches a class on community engagement, right? So it's all about, okay, so what are your strategies for community engagement? So, so some of that comes within context of the course material for the f- material for the specific course. Uh, we also are blessed with uh, a wonderful group of folks uh, that help us with uh, the learning design and uh, all, all the course management. And they do a great job of sort of keeping us honest about, okay, well, that's nice, but what does the rubric look like and how do you know? So there are, you know, there are assessments of learning that happen in the background. Um, and then the last thing, and this is really interesting for the students, is kind of right up there with the, the pivot thing we were talking about a minute ago. Um, one of the things that happens as the students get to their capstone is they've had multiple experiences with multiple instructors, and sometimes they've gotten conflicting information, right? Because, you know, I mean, if you play a sport and, and one coach, you know, you play baseball and one coach says to choke up on the bat and the other coach says to hold the bat all the way down at the bottom, you're going to go, ah, what do I do now, right? <laughs> so so part of it is also that experience of, of, of them resolving the ambiguity. I'll give you a great example. I had a student the other day who was considering changing their concept completely, going to a whole different idea of working with a whole different community. And there were pluses and minuses to sticking with what the student was working on versus changing to this other concept. And we talked through the pluses and minuses. Okay, if you do this one, you got to think about this, this, and that. If you do the other, you got to think about the other, the other. And the student says, well, what do you think I should do? And I said, I'm sorry, but that's like asking what kind of mustard you want on your sandwich. You know, do you like spicy? Then go here. Do you like not spicy? You know, and and so one of the things I think that we try to teach above everything else, and this is not intentional, and I don't mean that the faculty do this on purpose, but there is a certain level of any entrepreneurial experience where you have to understand dealing with ambiguity. You have to understand dealing with conflicting information, dealing with incomplete information, dealing with lack of information. Um, there's a great, great rule, uh, excuse me, great, great definition of, of what it means to be an entrepreneur uh, that was developed by a guy named Howard Stevens at Harvard years ago. And he said that an entrepreneur is someone who undertakes an attempt to build an organization without complete knowledge of all the materials necessary to complete the task, right? So if you think about somebody who builds a house, they've got blueprints, they've got the boards, they've got the shingles, they've got the pipe, and they build a house, which is great because you've got a house, right? But all of that is known ahead of time. Now, yes, sure, you might hit a rock when you're digging the foundation, but, you know, that's that's a minor issue. You know, an entrepreneur looks at looks at a field on a hill and says, I'm going to put a house here. And you say, how? Well, I don't know. Well, you do realize there's no road. Yeah, there's no road. Okay. Do you realize that's all right? Yeah, you know. And so that it's, it's a very different mindset. So that part of that kind of sneaks in through having multiple faculty, if, if that makes any sense at all. Oh, it, it does. And for me, it also makes a lot of sense too that I think the, the conflicting information is good in a way, because if you're going to be an entrepreneur, like you said, you're going to get incomplete information, conflicting information. How good are you at self-direction? Can you make these choices, these independent choices when people who have more experience than you are telling you 
different things? How do you decide what is right? Um, and I th- yeah. I would assume that's a natural part of their projects that they eventually have to decide. Do I right. choke up on the bat or do I do I right. swing? They've got to make they've got to make the call. They, we we can't make and and even if we could make the call, it's not the right thing for us to do as facilitators. Mm-hmm. Because again, the learning is is the piece. Now, I, I, there's one other thing I have to say about this whole experience that that I'm extremely proud of that UMB does that is different from most entrepreneurship educations, whether it's social entrepreneurship or commercial entrepreneurship. Just about every program has a culminating experience that involves in a presentation of some sort. In entrepreneurship language, we call it the pitch. And just about every campus that has these kinds of programs has their pitches in a competition. And there's actually really good research that says that pitch competitions are not particularly good as a learning experience. Because what happens is the student that comes in first, just just the only thing they learn is they're pretty. You know, the only thing they learn is just, oh, man, I nailed it. Right. And the one that comes in last is like, eh, you know, I was kind of faking my way through it anyway. But the ones that come in second and third, it's really damaging because we all know on any given day, you're a better presenter. You're not as good a presenter. You connect with one particular judge or you don't connect with one particular judge. You're wearing the wrong color tie or the right color shirt, you know, the right pair of glasses. I mean, there's so many variables. And when you ask people about judging those kind of competitions and you say what separated the first from second, you often get a very intangible answer. I don't know. Scott just had something about him that I just, you know, Scott just really grabbed me. So we intentionally have our pitch as a showcase, not a competition. So everybody is on an even playing field. And the other thing is, if one of our students stands up in that activity and says, look, I've been working this on, on this idea for three years. Here's why it won't work. And here's all the things that I tried to do to make it work. And here's why none of them work either. So at the end of the day, I'm going to go get a job somewhere. I tell all of our students that that's the fastest way to get an A. If you're honest about it and you, and you show all your research and you say, here's all the things I tried to do. This is a problem that I can't solve for these reasons. You'll get an A quicker than the student that stands up and says, Here's my really cool idea. Here's how I'm really going to make it happen. And here's how I'm going to pay for it. And, you know, and just has the slickest presentation in the world. So we're, um, we're, we're real proud of the fact that um, failure is just failure will get you as good a grade as success, maybe better. <laughs> well, that's the real world, right? If, yeah, you, right? if you go through the process and you explain it. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. If if you've been working on it and you show the work, that's it doesn't always work out in the real world. And that's OK, as long as you can show that what you did had a logical train of thought behind it and you gave it a good try. I'm about yeah, that. And again, in the science world, that's much more accepted and understood. Right. This is this is something that I just couldn't fix in in, in the world of entrepreneurship, even in social entrepreneurship. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit it takes a little more time to get folks comfortable with that. And I think some of that, quite frankly, is just. The, 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 the culture in the United States and, you know, the sort of go, go, go. And, and even what it means, what the phrase entrepreneur means in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. context, I think, has something to do with that. But uh, we're, we're fighting that battle the best we can. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, because you're right. In the science world, you know, the experiment can fail 600 times and that, that happens as and long as you explain fine. it. Yeah. 
because you showed that it doesn't work. (laughs) I always love talking to people from different fields of specialty outside of like quantitative, you know, metric based hardcore, not hardcore science, but, you know, um, science, because we're all doing hardcore science. Um, But it's always interesting to hear the difference of culture, the difference of perspective uh, from other fields like that. And so on that note, I'm curious I think I know the answer now since we've been talking about it for 27 (laughs) minutes, but why choose this experiential learning approach over something more traditional like vertical top-down lecturing? I I feel like it has to be done experientially. It does. You've you've convinced me. (laughs) Well, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Put your hand on the microphone and say amen. Um, No, it absolutely has to be this way. And and it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, social entrepreneurship is in many ways, a subset of entrepreneurship in the larger context. Certainly from an educational standpoint, social entrepreneurship is a subset of entrepreneurship education. And there are folks that are a lot smarter than me that have been at it a lot longer than I have um, that have done a lot of research around this. But yeah, it's, it's just it's just not something you can do in theory. It's just not, you know, you can't, you can't write an essay about baking a pie. Well, I mean, you could, and I'm sure somebody has, and, and probably somebody's immediately thinking of one of the great literary books about pie baking. My mind immediately went to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance for some weird reason, but, um, you know, it's just, you can't, you, I guess you can't eat it, is what I would say. You can't eat the pie that is only an essay. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, so on that note, because this, it it feels like this has to be an experiential learning approach. Um, has that strategy that you mentioned before, kind of the students get together and critically assess and provide iterative, constructive feedback on each other's project? Has that strategy evolved since you first started to utilize it? Actually, I guess I should ask: How long have you been using that strategy? And then has it changed over time, or is the formula perfect and doesn't need to change? Oh. The formula is never perfect. It always needs to change, you know? I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the fun of teaching, right? You're always, you, you know, the, the reality of teaching is you learn more than the students do, right? Um, but so I've been doing this for, gosh, 16 years now. Um, and yes, it changes. I would say the, the, the biggest change, quite frankly, has been since I've come to UMB is working with graduate students where it's in a different context Whereas when I've done this with undergraduate students, um, it's a little bit different. The other thing, and this is just kind of human nature, I think, is it's often hard early on to get the students past the point of simply patting each other on the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with so that. So the students give the feedback and they say, Scott, this is really great. I love what you're doing here. And I'm like, okay, well, that's nice, but you know. Be constructive. And one of the things I think that, that we do in, in our program uh, in the Masters of Science in Health and Social Innovation is to say, look, you're a cohort. So they work together for a time, typically at least a year, and then the cohorts kind of mix and merge uh, over the summer each year. Um, so there's an amount of time where they can develop a relationship with each other where there's a level of trust and then the other thing is because they're all adult learners, there's a little bit more uh, willingness to, to, to be a little bit more candid with each other. But even there, you still often see, 
you know, that first sort of gentle pacifying phrase of this is a really good idea. I'm just wondering if you had thought about this. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very rare, happily. And, and I do pull students back uh, if this happens. It's very, very rare where you see students trash each other. I, 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 in 15, 16 years of doing this, I can't think of two or three times where I've had to pull somebody back and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, you really just flamed that person. So, you know, you need to apologize. It doesn't happen very often. So they're generally very positive. Yeah. Having students be more cautious with their feedback is definitely better than the other end. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and again, too I, generous. It, no, it happens. It, it happens that way um, very, very consistently. So it's good. And it's good. And, and it's healthy. And again, you know, I mean, if you go out into the world and try to launch an enterprise, um, you know, the world is going to be far less generous in how they give you feedback. So true. So true. Well, speaking of feedback, I'm curious, do you, do you get feedback from the students on this approach? Cause I'm, I, I don't know about their program is in its entirety, but I would consider this a unique class if I were taking it as part of a curriculum. Um, so do you get feedback on this unique approach or is this common? Like every class for this degree, this is how it's done. Uh, it is consistent throughout the courses that we teach. They also have specialization courses that they take that are taught in other parts of the institution. Um, but yeah, it's it's consistent in the courses that that, that we teach. Uh, interestingly enough, we also have a couple of agreements on campus with other schools at UMB where some of their students can come in and take one or two classes with us. And that's actually where the adjustment is more severe to get to what I think your question was, where students are like, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here, mm-hmm. right? Um, where they've been sitting in a more lecture-oriented mode and all of a the sudden they're, they're brought into this crazy world where they got to start thinking about stuff and putting stuff up on, on the easel, so to speak, and da-da-da-da-da. And, and um, there we get a lot of positive feedback that they find it very freeing and, and very open and very refreshing. So it's... You know, and, and I mean, people like to show off their work, right? I mean, that's a fundamental trait of human nature. You know, I'm I'm, I'm spend the last half hour showing off my work with you, and I'm having a ball, right? Same. This is <laughs> I, I love this conversation. I'm I'm learning so much. Um, You're very and kind. I, I, <laughs> thanks. I want to switch or kind of move the conversation over to since we've now that we've talked about experiential learning applied to a social innovation setting. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How would you advise somebody who wants to take this strategy and apply it to their class? Like, so I'm I'm thinking about teaching uh, a data analytics course, and I really like this approach of including experiential learning, um, this conversation based or this feedback based experiential learning strategy. What's advice that you could give to somebody who wants to implement this in their class? Fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> um, <laughs> happily. I do what I do because I'm not sure I could do this any other way. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've taught in, in, in more lecture-based situations. I often say, you know, when I, when I do um, speaking in seminars outside of the classroom with, with various groups that, that I'll talk with, um, you know, they don't know me. They've never met me before. And I stand up and one of the things I say is I say, I really want this to be conversational because unlike most faculty, I actually get tired of hearing myself talk. And, and so when that first question comes out of the room, I profusely thank that individual. And that tends to break the ice. So I, I think it's, it's getting comfortable with that. I also think it's getting comfortable with knowing what you don't know and being okay with that, right? Because, 
you know, students are going to point things out. And you're going to have to say, you know, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk that through together. Um, or yeah, I don't, let me get back to you on that. Right. And, and that's, that's not easy for those of us that have been trained in, you know, pedagogical standards and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, do you have expectations when you come into the class that as long as they hit these points, I'm satisfied or is it much more free reign is like, you know, as long as they have a good conversation and they touch on some of the things that are important. You know. Oh no, we've got learning objectives. Okay, so that's we've, yeah. Oh, I guess that's, oh yeah. Oh no, no, we've got we've got very very strong learning objectives. And again, and the folks that that help us do with the course design work have, have done fantastic job of keeping us honest in that regard. So there are very definitely things that we want them to learn. It's I think the the difference, Scott, is that. It's it's not that you don't have objectives. It's that you're flexible in the path to those objectives. I mm, think that's okay. the big difference. The big difference is we want you to get somewhere, but if you go, you know, south and then west and then north, or you go north and then east and then south, you know, if you get there, we're fine. And that's where being the facilitator of the conversation really comes into play, right? When you see them just continuously going south and they eventually need to go north, maybe like tip their ship 45 degrees and say, well, what about this? Let's go look over here. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. Thank you. Yeah. That's exactly it's 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 okay. You know, (laughs) And, and, and and it's also and this is something that only comes with time, quite frankly, is being instructive in how you help them turn direction. Right. Because like you said, you don't want to go back to just giving them the answer. You want them to come to it naturally. So it's a it's a gentle hand that has to turn the direction of the conversation. And that, right. like you said, I think the advice for people who want to implement them their, this in their classes, experience is the best teacher. You're going through experiential <laughs> learning too, right? You're going there to are, try. You know, I, have to, I have to say there's also, there's a lot of good material this is this is a technique that's been around long enough that there's a lot of good material i had the benefit of going through a week-long experiential education workshop when i was very very first in academia uh and geared specifically towards entrepreneurship education and this is a trite phrase but it really did change my life it really just changed how i looked at the whole thing and so and there's 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 lots of good material out there now on that so you know um, physician heal thyself, I think, would be the other advice there and study up a little bit on the technique and the t- tools before you start to dive into uh, to make it happen. Great. That sounds like really strong advice. Um, I want to finish off the interview with one last question. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions to ask all of our guests. And it's, what do you think is moving the needle in education? What is changing the landscape of teaching as we come out post-COVID? We got another half an hour? That's what I, that's, yeah, <laughs> we can start a whole nother discussion. Oh man. You know, the, the, the one thing that I think is working for us, and when I say us, I mean very specifically my program and, and, and my division of the institution and sort of how we approach this whole thing is this notion of what they're labeling as high flex. So when we have a class we have multiple ways that a student can access the content. They can come to it live. Every live session we have 
we record so they can go back and listen to the recording later. We have asynchronous modes. You know, there's a lot of different ways for the student to come into that. And, and the other thing I think is we need to have a greater recognition of the humanity of the students. I remember when I was teaching undergrads a while back, you know, it was sort of like, you're late for class. And uh, I hope that those days are ending. You know, I hope we're like, okay, good to see you. And, you know, and if you've got somebody that's got a chronic attendance problem, you take them aside and you just have a conversation. And you say, okay, how's, how's things? How's everything okay? And, you know, I, I think the humanity of the student is, is the other place where we're doing good work, but we've got room to grow. The formula's never perfect. We got to keep advancing it, right? No. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much for being a guest on Moving the Needle. Oh, thank you, Adibal. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.